Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. We continue our journey through the surviving works of Aeschylus with The Suppliants. Other translations of the title include The Suppliant Women or The Suppliant Maidens. Just make sure you're reading Aeschylus and not Euripides. I use the Morshead translation that's available at classics.mit.edu. This is not nearly as old as the translation I used for the Persians, so it's a bit easier to read, and I didn't see anything particularly weird about word choice. But there are still some quirks that arise from the format, and you should be aware of them as we discuss this play. You know the CAPTCHAs you sometimes get when you log into a website? The ones with the poorly scanned words that you need to figure out if it's a lowercase l or a capital I? Those were created to help read print that didn't scan well. And if you're reading an old text that you got from Project Gutenberg or classics.mit.edu, it's a text that was scanned and converted. There will be typos. If you're using the Morsehead translation from classics.mit.edu like I did, you will see several spots where the scanner was not able to differentiate between a capital I and a lowercase l. Most of the time, these should be read as a capital I, Ionian. Io. Except, of course, for those places where the exclamation lo is used. Clear as mud? Honestly, though, you should be able to tell from the context when to read Io versus when to read lo. We aren't exactly sure when this play was first performed, but we think it was around 463 BCE. We do know that it won first prize at the city Dionysia Festival, beating out a submission by Sophocles. So it can't have been performed any earlier than 468 BCE when Sophocles first submitted a play for competition. It is important to note that this is the only play in the Danaid trilogy to survive. We know about the other two plays, Egyptians and the Daughters of Danaeus, but we no longer have those texts to read. We're pretty sure that The Suppliants is the first play in this trilogy. I'll come back to this during the analysis of this play because it helps explain why The Suppliants ends where it does. As we saw in The Persians, the list of characters in this play is fairly small, but that doesn't mean the cast is necessarily small. The homogenous chorus of The Suppliants is made up of Danaeus' daughters, all 50 of them. And yes, while the size of a Greek course was not always as large as 50, it is probable that each daughter was represented by a single member of the chorus. Their father, Danaeus, is the first actor to appear on the stage. He's kind of like the modern major general in the Pirates of Penzance, doing what he can to protect them from the evil Egyptians. The next actor to appear is the King of Argos. He gives his name as Pelasgus, but the translation I used does not refer to him as such. The final actor to appear is the Herald of Egyptus. Egyptus is Danaeus's brother. The herald obviously speaks on behalf of Egyptus and Egyptus's 50 sons. The attendance is a catch-all term for the non-speaking, non-singing, but possibly dancing choruses. A chorus of Egyptians appears with the herald. You can think of them as the pirates of Penzance, just not as redeemable at all. And a chorus of the men of Argos appears at the end. Uh, they're kind of like the policemen of the pirates of Penzance, only not quite as inept. In case you've forgotten, the parts of the play we're looking for are the prologue, Parados, a series of episodes in Stasimons, and the Exodus. Just like in the Persians, Aeschylus does not use a scene for the prologue of the Suppliants. 
Instead, he skips right to the Parados and lets the course provide the background information viewers need to understand what happened before the play started. It's their version of climbing over rocky mountains. Here's what's happened. Danaeus has 50 daughters, the Danaeids. His brother Egyptus has 50 sons. Egyptus has decided that his sons should marry his brother's daughters. Danaeus doesn't want this to happen, and not one of the Danaeids is interested in marrying her cousin. Danaeus and Egyptus live in North Africa. Yes, that's why Egyptus sounds kind of like Egypt. To prevent the marriages, Danaeus and the Danaeids have fled to Argos in Greece. The Danaeids then go on to explain that they are descendants of Io, who was originally from Argos. So by seeking refuge in Argos, they have come to their ancestral homeland. Don't know the story of Io? Don't worry. They'll tell you. Multiple times. Including in this song. Io was a mortal who caught Zeus's eye. It happened. A lot. So Hera changed her into a cow. But Zeus, being Zeus, didn't care, and through either a consensual or a non-consensual interaction, Io got pregnant. As a cow. And Hera was pissed. So she sent a gadfly to pester Io. The gadfly chased her all the way across the Mediterranean to the not-yet-named Egypt, because Egyptus hadn't been born yet. And even though Io was a cow, she still had a human baby named Epiphus, because Zeus could make that happen. Danaeus, and thus the Danaeids, were descended from Epiphus. In the song, the Danaeids recount how they have reversed Io's journey by returning to Argos. Not gonna lie, this is a really long song. As they go on, they sing about how they would rather die than marry their cousins. Once the Danaeids are finally done singing, Danaeus and the leader of the chorus summarize what the Danaeids just spent five pages singing about. They then pray at all of the shrines they can find. Zeus, Apollo, Poseidon, Hermes, a whole bunch of lesser gods. Yeah, those lesser gods have to share a shrine. The king of Argos, Pelasgus, enters along with his non-speaking, non-singing, possibly dancing chorus of attendants. He tells the Danaeids who he is and grills them about who they are. So if you missed any details about the story of Io... Don't worry, you get to hear it again. On a side note, this latest retelling includes mention of Argus, not to be confused with Argos, whom Hermes slew. I highly recommend George O'Connor's graphic novel for, uh, about Hermes for this story, but I digress. The leader also explains to Pelasgus why they fled. Again, they repeat everything that was in the Parados. The leader asks Pelasgus for refuge, and he waffles. A lot. And this section is painful because you just want to scream at him to let them live free in his lands. And she keeps begging, but he refuses to make up his mind. So in proper musical fashion, the conversation gets so heated that they can't just talk anymore. And the chorus breaks into song. So instead of Pelasgus saying something and the leader responding, now Pelasgus says something and the whole chorus of Danaids sings at him. The crux of the exchange is that Pelasgus wants to help them. He feels their pain, but he can't just go and do something that might result in a war without the approval of his people first. Pelasgus remains unconvinced, um, even after being sung at by all 50 Danaids. But once the leader explains to him that they will hang themselves before they marry their cousins, he finally gets how dire the situation is. He agrees to ask the people what they want to do. He tells the Danaids to lay their suppliant wands at every altar in town in the hopes that this will help sway the decision in their favor. 
Danaeus asks for some attendants to show them the way so that they don't miss any of the shrines. Pelasgus agrees, and Danaeus exits. Pelasgus tells the chorus that he'll go talk to his people, and he exits too, leaving the chorus alone on stage. The first stasimon is a prayer to Zeus. It talks about, you guessed it, Io. You know, reminding Zeus that they're descendants of Io, which means they're descended from him, so it's kind of all his fault that they're in the situation in the first place. So he should do something about it. Danaeus returns with good news. The people of Argos have agreed that the Danaeids will be protected. Yes, this is technically an episode, and it consists of a single speech. The Danaeids respond to the good news with a song thanking the Argives for taking them in and praying that the gods bless their saviors. Danaeus praises his daughters for the sentiment of their song, but then shares news that the pirates, I mean the Egyptians, have been sighted and are about to land at Argos. The Danaeids tell him that they are terrified by this news, and he tells them to be brave because the Argives have sworn to defend them. He leaves to assemble the troops. The Danaeids sing of their terror and reiterate that they would sooner die than be wed to their cousins. By the end of this song, they are clinging to the altar, describing their deepest fears. This is another tough part of the show. They know that if the Argives don't keep their word, they, the Danaeids, will be the ones to suffer. They will be assaulted physically, sexually, and carried off into forced marriages. Their fears are well-founded and painfully articulated. The Egyptians enter. Much like the leader of the chorus speaks on behalf of all of the Danaeids, a single herald speaks on behalf of all of the Egyptians. As the Danaeids feared, their cousins do attack them, and a massive fight between the chorus of Danaeids and the chorus of Egyptians ensues. Fortunately, before the Egyptians are able to drag the Danaeids to their ship, Pelasgus enters with the chorus of Argives. He bids them yield at once in Queen Victoria's name. I mean, in his own name, or in Zeus's name, or you know. The point is that they yield, at least for now. Consensus is that this isn't going to end well, but the Egyptians do withdraw. They shout some threats as they go, but still they go. They go. They really, 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 really go. And after they've gone, Pelasgus invites the Danaeids to live in peace in Argos. And Danaeus finally returns with the troops. Yes, they're a little late. Like he did at the beginning of the play, he tells his daughters to give offerings to the gods, only this time in Thanksgiving instead of suppliants. He also tells them they are to remain single. The leader, speaking on behalf of her sisters, agrees to his terms. The chorus sings their final song in which they dedicate themselves to Artemis and announce that they will refuse all marriage requests. There isn't a bit of final dialogue in the Exodus, and the final song breaks form somewhat by breaking the chorus in two. One source I looked at describes this section as being sung by a secondary chorus of Argives and the original chorus of Danaids. The translation I'm working from does not indicate that the Argives have any lines, and in my reading and rereading of the song, it doesn't make sense if it's sung by anyone other than the Danaids. Um, but your translation might reflect something different. And that is where the play ends. Before we dive into an analysis of the suppliants, let's review what was probably included in the rest of this trilogy. You might have heard about the Danaids before, but what Aeschylus covers in the suppliants is not the part of the myth we generally remember today. The next part of the myth is usually the part that is told today. The play has a relatively happy ending. After all, the Danaids are given refuge in Argos. 
the forced marriages stopped. But in the myth, and as far as we know in the trilogy, it is only stopped temporarily. Ultimately, the Danaids are forced to wed their cousins. This is the part of the myth you may remember hearing. On their wedding night, 49 of the 50 daughters murder their new husbands. The 50th doesn't because her new husband is the only one of the 50 sons not to rape his new wife. She spares him because he respects her bodily autonomy. In the underworld, the Danaids are punished by being forced to fill a jar with water. No big deal, except for the fact that the jar leaks like a sieve. As far as we know, the other two plays in the trilogy finished this myth, showing the forced marriage and the murders. As we analyze this play, we should consider it both as an individual piece and as only one part of a whole. Because it is the only play in this trilogy to survive, we have no choice but to consider it and perform it as a standalone piece. And it is still performed today. So what should we make of it? Is this play really a tragedy? It is problematic to categorize it that way because it does not bear the standard hallmarks of a tragedy. No one dies. The Danaids get what they want. But it also doesn't bear the standard hallmarks of a comedy. It's not funny. There's no big wedding at the end. After all, the whole point of the play is for the Danaids to avoid marriage. As a standalone, it is better called a problem play than a tragedy. You undoubtedly noticed that the story of Io recurs throughout the play. From an analytic point of view, it is interesting to compare the story of Io to that of the Danaids. Io travels from Argos to Egypt. The Danaids travel from Egypt to Argos. Both are vexed by Hera. Aya because Zeus fell in love with her, and the Danaids because they refuse marriage. And you'll recall that Hera is the goddess of marriage. A second theme that runs through this play is democracy. Did you find it odd that Pelasgus couldn't just get on with it and grant the Danaids permission to settle in Argos? After all, he is the king, right? King need nobody, no one at all. Oh, wait, wrong show. Instead, he insists that he needs to consult with his people before he can allow the Danaids refuge. This action is unnecessary in a monarchy. But Athens, where this play was originally performed, was not a monarchy. It was a democracy. And even if there were periods during which a tyrant, and yes, that's the technical term, was deemed to be necessary, there was not a king. The tyrant was only to rule for a specific number of years. Pelasgus is not a tyrant. He is a king. But the play reminds the people of Athens that the voice of the people, red men, is required when making decisions that will affect everyone, red men. Since the acceptance of the Danaids as refugees will likely result in war with the Egyptians, this is one of those decisions. Whether or not the Athenian men watching the play cheered at this, I don't know. I don't know how rowdy Greek audiences were. It is also tempting and possibly appropriate for a modern audience to treat this play as a piece of feminist art. The Danaids speak for themselves. They are attempting to refuse the patriarchal structure of arranged marriages. Sort of. After all, Danaeus isn't so keen on the idea either. He has traveled with them and is the one to lay offerings at all of the shrines in town. At the end, it is he who commands the Danaids to remain unmarried forever. But the Danaids don't seem to take issue with this command. Is it because they are so relieved to be free of the Egyptians? If they had the option to take a better offer, would they have wanted to? That choice has been taken away from them. So maybe not so feminist after all? But then there's the entrance of Pelasgus. He starts by asking the Danaids to explain who they are. The leader asks who he is before she answers. He, and he tells her, instead of demanding she answer his question first. He doesn't have to do that. 
He could have insisted that they answer him first. He could have turned them away immediately. He may be annoyingly wishy-washy, but he is at least attempting to be as much of an ally as an ancient Greek king can be. There are definitely feminist themes that a modern audience can find, even though Aeschylus most certainly did not know that feminism was a thing. While we can't recreate the rest of the trilogy, as a work of literature, it is useful to consider that some of the shortfalls of the suppliants would be resolved if the other two plays had survived. The suppliants isn't exactly a tragedy, but if we think about the trilogy as a whole, it is. Lots of people die. The Danaids suffer eternal punishment for their actions. We may not have the text of the other two plays, but we do know what happens in them. What happens with the themes of democracy and feminism when we look at what happens in parts two and three? Obviously, we can't say for certain, but using the myth, we can see that these themes might start to fall apart somewhat. The Egyptians and the Argives go to war, and Pelasgus is killed. The Danaids are forced into the marriages that were avoided at the end of the suppliants. While the play can and does stand alone, we can't help but wonder how we would read it if the rest of the trilogy had survived. Next week, we'll take on the only surviving play from another trilogy, Seven Against Thebes. I'll talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.